In today's brief, we'll talk about Zaluzhny's op-ed, another sunken battleship, and Zelensky cursing on air. I'm Yulia, and today is Monday, November 6, 2023. You're listening to the Ukraine War Brief podcast, where we deliver the news from Ukraine with added insights, explainers, and analysis. Now, let's get started with the news from the front. The situation around the front remains difficult for Ukraine, but with some significant Ukrainian wins. Over the weekend, Ukraine destroyed the Project 22800 Karakurt-class corvette Askold, which was capable of carrying up to eight-caliber cruise missiles and hit large ammunition depots deep behind the front lines in Donetsk. Ukraine's attack on Zalev shipyard in Kerch, occupied Kyrym, was validated with videos and pictures emerging of the attack and the aftermath. It appears that Storm Shadow slash Scalp EG cruise missiles were used. Videos and pictures surfaced showing the Project 22800 Karakord class corvette was destroyed. To strike their target, the missiles had to contend with two S-400 TEL slash 92 and 6 air defense systems. The Anti-Access and Area Denial Battle Management Radar Site, a 91N6 Big Bird Air Defense Radar System, and three Panzer Air Defense Systems. At the beginning of the full-scale invasion, this area had up to eight S-400 air defense complexes, many of which have now been destroyed by sophisticated drone, missile, electronic warfare, and special ops strikes. Aw, sad. Ukraine also struck a fuel depot in Mariupol. Due to an intelligence failure and, quite frankly, a boneheaded decision to give awards to artillerymen near the front, Russia killed 19 servicemen using a ballistic missile. President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky commented on the situation, saying that it could have and should have been avoided, and everyone responsible for the death of these servicemen, with this naive decision, should be brought to justice. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. The losses that were reported to have occurred on Friday, November 3rd through Monday, November 6th included 47 tanks, 81 armored personnel vehicles, 97 artillery systems, 17 multiple launch rocket systems, 4 anti-aircraft systems, 66 tactical operational drones, and 3,550 personnel. Ukraine made advances near Krynky in Kherson Oblast and continue to defend Avdiivka. There are other battles along the front that require further analysis, which we'll talk about in our next episode. Next up, the temporarily occupied territories. Everyone's second favorite fascist-loving paper billionaire, Elon Musk, recently alleged that there is no resistance movement in occupied Ukraine. In response, at Yellow Ribbon ENG launched the hashtag ElonWeAreHere flash mob on Twitter. Yes, Twitter, it's not X, it will never be X. To educate the petulant man-child and ketamine addict on how many Ukrainians are waiting for liberation from Russian occupation. Ukrainians took pictures of their hands holding signs in English saying, quote, Elon, we are here, end quote, and inserting the name of the occupied city they're currently in is Ukraine in occupied Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and Krym, in front of notable landmarks. We wish Musk would get out of geopolitics and try to salvage his failing businesses, including Twitter. Musk remains under investigation by the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, the Department of Justice, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that one must hurt, and the Senate. 
The campaign is a great troll, but more than that, they're incredible acts of bravery. Russians have killed about half the population of Mariupol and are deporting children deep inside Russia. There are Russian telegram channels dedicated to doxing Ukrainians, including teenagers, who express any pro-Ukrainian sentiments, especially in occupied Krym. Victims are often arrested, disappear without a trace, beaten, and or forced to make public apologies. So participating comes at a serious risk for those Ukrainians living under occupation. Moving on to the home front. Since Russia's efforts to break the deadlock on the front have been unsuccessful, they've turned towards manipulation of the information space. As always. So let's talk about it. A cloud of doom and gloom flooded social media, with anonymous sources telling NBC and Time that the US and EU are warming up to the idea of peace talks between Ukraine and Russia. General Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, wrote an article in The Economist saying the summer counteroffensive failed and the situation on the front is at a stalemate. President Zelensky contradicted this claim and did some damage control. Upon closer inspection of this article, Zaluzhny appeared to be taking some of the blame for the failed strategy this summer and conducted a sober analysis of the situation on the front. And to be fair, he assigned some of the blame to Western allies, who weren't prepared for an attritional war and were slow to deliver promised equipment. Ukraine still doesn't have F-16s, for example. In doing so, he built credibility with military and intelligence leaders in the West who appreciated his clear-eyed assessment. Further, Zaluzhny called for new strategies and new technologies. We didn't interpret this to mean he was demanding more military equipment, although that's certainly an ask. He was asking the West to get creative with Ukraine and help Ukraine fight an asymmetrical war. His big ask was to help Ukraine think outside the box while providing technological superiority. War is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It takes time, and time isn't on Ukraine's side. The Biden administration, along with leaders in the EU, need to assume a wartime posture, define the strategic outcome as Russia leaving every single kilometer of Ukrainian territory, and act accordingly. Quote, as long as it takes, depends in part on the West. Zelensky, for his part, made his stance very clear on US political talk show Face the Nation. We are not ready to give our freedom to this terrorist Putin. That's it. That's why we are fighting. That's it. A little commentary I'll add here. War is not only fought on the battlefield, it is also fought in the information space. And Russia dominates that space quite a bit. So when you see big claims, big articles, and big people delivering them to the media, turn on the best of your analytical thinking. In this case, I would like to point out General Zaluzhny. No supreme military commander-in-chief, when faced with a stalemate or redevelopment of strategy, is going to be writing an article and releasing it to the press. Media is very often used as a tool, more often than we might think, and sometimes it's being used as a strategic tool for the opponent or for a specific outcome that one wants. If that article coming from General Zaluzhny gave you a reason to worry, reconsider your approach to the media and how it's being utilized by those in power to influence specific outcomes, get a feel for reactions, and change the course of war. Had his thoughts been a recent discovery, he would not be writing a memoir about them. He would be strategizing with his team, which I'm sure he did when he came to all of the conclusions you have recently read about. So, that's just some food for thought. Speaking of media manipulations, let's talk about the Russian Federation. 
The Kyiv School of Economics said Google was among 12 international companies that fully exited the Russian market in October, as the exodus of most foreign businesses continues. In addition to Google and Carlsberg, IT company Asbis, dairy giant Denon, retailer Decathlon, electrical equipment makers Ensto and Legrand, the agribusiness subsidiary of mining conglomerate Glencore, Viterra, furniture giant Inca, industrial manufacturer Sulter, telecoms operator Vion, document giant Xerox, and elevator maker Cone, Russia only tried to seize the assets of Glencore, Carlsberg, and Denon. A total of 296 foreign companies have exited the Russian market. See how easy that is, Nestle? You might just want to try. On the night of November 2nd and 3rd, a white Volvo XC90 SUV with license plate number H622HH caught fire in the Russian city of Nizhny Novgorod. Its owner burned alive inside. He was Igor Kuznetsov, Director General of the State Scientific Research Institute of Mechanical Engineering, or Gosnyemash. The HUR, or Ukraine's military intelligence, claimed responsibility for the assassination. Gosnyemash manufactures and develops missile warheads, including the KH missile series, Kinjal hypersonic missile, and air defense systems. Gosnyemash is under sanctions by the US, EU, and Japan. The Telegram channel breaking the news cheerfully added, The hunt continues. Aw, so sad. For the Russians. The Kremlin fired the head of the state news agency. TASS, former media partner of Reuters, for reporting too truthfully during the Wagner mutiny, according to the Moscow Times. Sergei Mikhailov was dismissed 10 days after Prigozhin's putsch, although it wasn't revealed until this weekend. Apparently, Mikhailov wanted to resign from TASS following the full-scale invasion, because he really enjoyed traveling to Europe but couldn't due to sanctions. The Kremlin wouldn't let him, so he did the right thing and stayed on the job. Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Chernyshenko fired him for two major sins. Mikhailov's first sin was reporting too accurately during the putsch. A Russian government official said, quote, The neutrality of TASS is of no use to anyone right now. It's wartime and presidential elections are looming. Putin must win on record. Under the new director general, TASS will be more aggressive and provocative. End quote. I guess they're just saying the quiet part out loud now. Progress. His second sin was reportedly leaving Moscow during the coup. A lot of people skipped down that day, including propagandist and war criminal Margarita Simonyan, who said she was on a pre-planned vacation. Others, according to Flight Radar 24, were billionaire and oligarch Arkady Rotenberg, Deputy Prime Minister Denis Monturov, billionaire Vladimir Patanin, and billionaire Boris Kovalchuk. Putin also likely left Moscow, despite Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov's denials. We are so sad to see Mikhailov go. And we hope he enjoys his travels to Treblinka, Lublanka, or wherever it is they sent him. Now everyone's favorite subject, the good Russians. U.S. prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn, known for their aggressive pursuit of terrorists and sanctions evaders, unsealed an indictment against three Russian citizens for smuggling electronic components to their motherland. Salim John Nasridinov, Nikolai Goltsev, and Kristina Puzuryova were charged with smuggling, conspiracy to violate sanctions, and conspiracy to commit fraud. Goltsev received orders for prohibited electronic components from his handlers in the Russian defense and tech sectors. Using ingenious aliases like Nick Stevens or Gio Ross, Goltsev purchased the kit, which Nasridinov then funneled to shell companies SH Brothers and SN Electronics, and then had them shipped to Brooklyn. 
They then shipped the items to intermediary corporations in Turkey, Hong Kong, India, China, and the UAE, where they were rerouted to Russia. Puzirova operated numerous bank accounts and conducted financial transactions in furtherance of the scheme. The components were later found in Ukraine from seized Russian equipment and tracked back to the trio. They were found in the torn MDM radio reconnaissance complex, the RB301B Borisoglebsk 2 electronic warfare complex, the Izdelia 305E light multipurpose guided missile, the Vitebsk L370 airborne counter missile system, KA attack helicopters, Orlan 10 reconnaissance drones, and T72 main battle tanks. It's unclear how many Ukrainians they've killed. Over a period of a year, they made $7 million. In message exchanges between November 8th and November 15th, 2022, Gultsev commented how shipping to Russia had become, quote, dangerous, and discussed a shipment of electronic components that had been detained by officials at JFK Airport in New York. In a February 23rd, 2023 message, Nasridinov wrote to Gultsev, quote, Happy Defender of the Fatherland. Gultsev responded, quote, Happy holiday to you too, my friend. We are defending it in the way that we can. Smile emoji. End quote. Not all Russians, am I right? Nasridinov is a resident of Brooklyn and has dual citizenship in Russia and Tajikistan. Golsev and Puzirova are dual Canadian-Russian citizens living in Montreal. Nasridinov was arrested at his apartment in Brooklyn and Golsev and Puzirova were arrested at a Manhattan hotel on Tuesday morning. Under U.S. law, they're presumed innocent until proven guilty. The EDNY has a 99.5% conviction rate, so I'm not holding my breath for this one. They're facing prison time, and I'd be surprised if there aren't more surprise indictments still under seal. Another man that could be now called a good Russian, Kirill, a musician born in Kharkiv, fled to Poland in March 2022 and has lived in the EU ever since. He had this to say about Poland. You know what pisses me off in Poland? I'm pissed off by the Polish language. I don't understand why they speak this language when there's the Russian language. I really don't understand. Dudes, just learn Russian and speak a normal language. I don't understand. There's the Russian Empire. Just join it. Join it like before. And speak a normal language, morons. That's what I think, after all. Well, if he loves the Russian Empire so much, why doesn't he go back? Maybe someone in Poland, like, maybe someone in the government, would like to tell Kirill that he doesn't have to speak Polish, and then promptly deport him. That would be nice. Also, a bit of a clarification here. Kirill was born in Kharkiv, but spent most of his adulthood and career working in Moscow. He is truly a fan of the Russian world. Russian hackers breached the email addresses of 632,000 employees from the U.S. Justice and Defense Departments in May. The Office of Personnel Management gained access to wide-ranging sensitive information and classified the hack as a major incident, with officials from Air Force, Army, Army Corps of Engineers, Secretary of Defense, and Joint Staff among the most impacted. Russian cyber gang CLOP were responsible. Next up, European news. Let's talk about our friends and frenemies in Europe. We are getting some welcome whiplash from the Vatican. During the third meeting on the Ukrainian peace formula in Malta, which included 65 countries, Secretary of State of the Holy See, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, 
sent in a video address that the Vatican now supports Ukraine's 10-point peace plan. The Cardinal asked for a greater and more creative commitment to all levels to, quote, overcome obstacles and open paths that currently seem unacceptable or impossible, end quote. He reiterated the Holy See's appeals for respect for international law, especially concerning territorial integrity, the return of children and prisoners of war. The Pope said it's the duty of all Catholics to ask themselves every day, quote, what am I doing today for the Ukrainian people? Am I doing something? End quote. Habemus papam. Bulgaria expelled a Russian propagandist working for a Russian state media outlet, saying he was a threat to national security. Alexander Gatsak, correspondent for Russian state newspaper Rasiska Gazeta, was summoned to Bulgaria's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Instead of appearing, though, he hid in the Russian embassy in Sofia. So Bulgaria just declared him persona non grata. Gatsak is now banned from entering the EU. It's almost like Russians are using journalists as cover for covert operations. Anywho, Moscow retaliated this weekend by expelling Bulgarian journalist Angel Grigorov from Bulgarian National Radio. The Clooney Foundation for Justice, Amal and George Clooney's NGO, filed three cases with German federal prosecutors to investigate crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. The cases rely on absolute universal jurisdiction in Germany, which allows the country to open investigations for international crimes, including genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, committed outside its borders. The CFJ is representing 16 survivors and families of victims of three alleged crimes, including an indiscriminate missile attack on a resort in Odessa Oblast, executions in Kharkiv Oblast, and crimes against humanity in Kyiv Oblast during Russian occupation. The Clooney Foundation is going to be very busy over the next few years. Side note, I need to reach out to them over something we learned while we were in Ukraine. So, if you have a contact, let us know. A prominent Russian oligarch was arrested early last month in France for money laundering. According to Le Monde, police searched his luxury apartment in Paris and his villa in Saint-Tropez, finding, quote, wads of money on the floor. Alexei Kuzmichev, owner of Alpha Bank, has a net worth of $6.5 billion as of 2023. Alpha Bank was one of the first entities to be sanctioned by the EU and US after the full-scale invasion in 2022. Kuzmichev himself was sanctioned by the US in 2023. His yachts were seized by the French in March. C'est très bon, but what took them so long? And why was he in France to begin with? France wants to deport 39 Russians suspected of holding radical Islamist views. Paris apparently can't expel Russian nationals without Moscow's consent. Gerald Darmanin is under pressure following a terrorist attack there. Mohamed Magouchkov, a 20-year-old native of the Russian Republic of Ingushetia, stabbed a schoolteacher to death on October 13th. Three others were wounded. Ingushetia is in North Caucasus, west of Chechnya, which is just west of Dagestan. All three republics are among the poorest in the Russian Federation. Merci beaucoup, France. Slovak Prime Minister and philanderer Robert Fico is softening his stance on Ukraine. Last week, he announced that the 50 billion euro aid package could be released on some conditions. And today, he clarified that Slovak private companies can continue to export weapons and ammo. Slovakia produces 180,155mm artillery shells a year and is a key exporter of shells. I guess the money does smell good, doesn't it? Moldova's intelligence chief Alexandru Mustayata gave more details this weekend about Russia's coup attempt and ongoing active measures. 
Russia spent about a billion Moldovan lei, or 55 and a half million dollars, to overthrow the democratic government and destabilize the country. Russia's security services apparently directed Ilan Sor, an Israeli-born Moldovan oligarch, leader of a criminal gang, and fugitive from Moldovan justice, to bribe voters and illegally finance his political party. Mostayata and Sor spent $5.5 million trying to influence today's local Moldovan elections. Candidates from the pro-democracy, pro-EU, pro-Ukraine party of Maya Sandu, the party of action and solidarity, were elected in many villages and towns, with some narrow defeats in Moldova's big cities. Sandu won the presidency in November 2020, and her party gained control of parliament seven months later from the pro-Russian Socialist Party. Moscow tried to overthrow the government through a violent coup attempt in February 2023 by funneling money to Shore, who owns several TV stations. The government shut down those TV stations and banned pro-Russian parties from running in the elections. Shor was sentenced in absentia to 15 years in prison for a bank fraud scandal one-eighth the size of Moldova's economy. He's under US, UK and EU sanctions and currently lives in Israel. Next, News Worldwide. If you're enjoying the episode, leave a five-star rating with your review. If you have any feedback, we welcome it. Leave a comment on Spotify or email us at social at borlingen.media. Coming soon, we'll be offering ad-free podcasts on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the brief. There are several important elections in the United States we'll be watching on Tuesday, as they're important bellwethers for next year's 2024 presidential and congressional elections. Virginia's House of Delegates and Senate, New Jersey's Senate and Assembly, and Ohio's statewide ballot measure on abortion rights, the Kentucky governorship, and a Pennsylvania Supreme Court seats are all on our radar. If moderate Republicans and Democrats outperform in these elections, we'll view it as a strong sign that hard-right Republicans, the ones currently blocking funding for Ukraine, may lose control of the U.S. House, struggle to regain the Senate, and likely struggle in the presidential election as well. The New York Times and Siena College conducted a series of polls in swing states, showing former President Donald Trump, who's pledged to cut aid to Ukraine, leading Joe Biden in all six swing states except Wisconsin. We know why the Times issued the polls. To generate headlines. But we don't find them particularly insightful. Polls this far out from Election Day aren't really predictive of election outcomes. Special elections, on the other hand, are far more predictive, especially for congressional races. Although the 2024 election is still a year away, and a lot can happen in a year, these results will undoubtedly be watched by the Kremlin and Ukraine. Strong results for Democrats may give the Biden administration more political leverage with funding bills, although we assess that probability is small. According Tashkent found a citizen of Uzbekistan, Ildar Kairulin, who served in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic military from 2014 to 15, guilty of violating the Uzbek law against mercenaries. He was sentenced to five years in prison. The Institute for the Study of War assessed that the sentencing may strain relations between Central Asian countries and Russia. But what's Russia going to do? Invade? The US, UK, and France warned Putin that they'd respond with conventional weapons if Russia used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, according to the Financial Times. Chinese President Winnie the Pooh Xi Jinping also warned Putin against using a nuke during his visit to Moscow in March this year. Not that Russia could use a nuke even if it wanted to. But anyways. 
During a test of the RS-24 Yars intercontinental ballistic missile on November 1st, the missile went off course, according to Ukrainian military intelligence. The same thing happened during a test on October 25th. The Yars ICBM is Russia's main ground component of its strategic nuclear arsenal. The RSM-56 Bulova missile, launched from a submarine on October 25th, failed too. The HUR said Moscow is struggling to develop its RS-28 Sarmat, dubbed the Satan II by some media outlets, another ground-based ICBM. Both the Yars and Sarmat are launched from soils or mobile devices, according to the label. It gets worse. Putin had to pause the rollout of the Tu-160M2 strategic bombers for air-launched missiles because it can't produce the NK-32 engines they require. Aw, sad. The U.S. Treasury imposed sweeping new sanctions against Moscow on November 2nd, targeting Russia's future energy capabilities, sanctions evasion, and the Landsat suicide drone. Hundreds of people and entities were sanctioned. The State Department said a big target is the Arctic-2 LNG, a massive project in Siberia that's trying to bring liquefied natural gas to market. By sanctioning the procurement network supporting drone production, the U.S. is trying to increase the cost and difficulty for Russia to produce the Lancet. The Commerce Department added at least 12 companies to the sanctions list. Ukraine's foreign ministry expressed its extreme concern after Turkey received a delegation from Russian-occupied Krym. On November 1st, delegates from occupied Yalta attended the International Organization of United Cities and Local Governments and announced a sister city agreement. Apparently, Russia and Turkey agreed that the municipal district of Belikduzu in Istanbul is the sister city of occupied Yalta. Maybe Turkey wants Russia to occupy Istanbul then? Or maybe it's because 750 kilograms of meth were seized there last month. Oleg Nikolenko, spokesperson for the ministry, demanded Turkey clarify its position on the matter. We're still waiting. President Zelensky is set to visit Israel in the coming week. Zelensky had offered to come more than two weeks ago, but Israel felt it was premature. Some in Israel see his upcoming visit as symbolically important, as it would indicate something of a unified front of Israel, Ukraine, Europe, Japan, South Korea, and the US against the axis of Russia, Iran, and China. Security analyst James Scher penned an article on October 30th laying out the case that Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan are all connected. And we agree. So we wanted to include today's episode. Scher said, quote, On October 13th in Bishkek, Putin claimed that no one suspects Russia wants to play around with Gaza conflict because of its strong and good relations with Hamas and Israel. But the historical record belies this assurance. Even in Soviet times, when Moscow took the ideological offensive against U.S. imperialism and Israeli aggression, it sought to create synergies between the region's endemic contradictions and hostilities. Under Putin's watch, it has cooperated pragmatically with every country and its worst enemy. It has played around with premeditation and purpose, deepening relations with Iran, Saudi Arabia, Hamas, and Israel simultaneously. In itself, the Putin-Netanyahu relationship emerged from a balance of fears no less than a balance of forces, to which one must add the respect of each party for the tenacity and calculated ruthlessness of the other. But it also was a product of permissive circumstances. President Obama's pivot to Asia and the diminution of America's presence and influence in the Middle East. Over a good 15 years, the relationship brought tangible benefits to both sides. On the one hand, Russia looked the other way while Israel struck targets inside Lebanon and Syria, 
In turn, Israel refused to join Western sanctions regimes of 2014 and 2022 against Russia, and, despite U.S. entreaties, hasn't overly supplied air defense systems or other lethal weapons to Ukraine either, at least overtly. In 2011, Putin went so far as to describe Israel as a special state to us, practically a Russian-speaking country. And only seven years ago, he called it an unconditional ally against international terrorism. Yet, Putin offered no condolences to Netanyahu after Hamas's attack. To understand this change, you need to appreciate just how radically the Ukraine war has restructured Russia's priorities. Prior to February 2022, the 50-year special relationship with Germany was at least as important as the Russia-Israel relationship, but it was sacrificed on the altar of Russia's special military operation. Russia has made the same calculation regarding Israel. Five interests now take precedence. The rupturing of the West, the war in Ukraine, ties with Iran, which the war has made an indispensable ally of Russia, sabotaging the US-sponsored Saudi-Israel Entente and driving as many wedges as possible between the collective West and the global South. In short, the specific conditions that spawned the Russia-Israel relationship 15 years ago have given way to new ones. The new conditions are at least as advantageous to Russia as the old conditions. Today, we need to face the four unpalatable truths. First, Russia views Israel as the Achilles heel of the US. Washington might claim that it will support Ukraine as long as it takes, but it knows that Israel cannot be allowed to fail. If Congress is forced to debate the relative priority of Ukraine and Israel, there is no debate, Israel wins. Second, Israel's greatest weakness is that it's predictable. History has taught the Israelis that turning the other cheek is a recipe for extinction. The attack on October 7th wasn't merely, in the words of Israel's ambassador to Germany, the deadliest day for the Jews since the Holocaust. It was a stunning exercise in reflexive control, the defeat of an adversary by its own actions. Israel's survival is more at risk today than at any time since 1948. Third, the fates of Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan are intertwined. What links them is the commitment and credibility of the United States. The Kremlin believes that their removal from the political map would mean the end of the West as such. Possibly, it is right. And fourth, whether or not Russia was complicit in Hamas's attack, it had every reason to be. Its 17-year relationship with Hamas goes well beyond courtesy calls. The visits of the Hamas leadership and the head of its Politburo to Moscow in March and September 2023 were almost certainly about consultation rather than courtesy. If, as informed sources claim, Hamas and Iran began planning the operation one year ago, it's highly unlikely that Russia was kept in the dark. François Tom recently wrote, Putin understands nothing about Western civilization. On the other hand, he has an honoring instinct for what can destroy it. Maybe. Over the years, Putin has proved himself to be less a master strategist than an engineer of lose-lose outcomes. He might come to regret some of these. U.S. military power is now returning to the Middle East in earnest. It takes little effort to grasp that an Israel-Iran, not to say U.S.-Iran war, could bring a swift halt to Iran's lifeline of military supplies to Russia. Moreover, it would swiftly expose Russia's limitations. In such a war, Russia would have no spare military power to offer. Instead of making Russia indispensable, it might show the world that it has no clothes. In the end, Russia might pay a horrendous price for the harm it has wrought. But the end could be far away. Meanwhile, Russia's capacity to confound, subvert, and damage is likely to remain unrivaled. 
We can already see evidence that Cher is correct. Armenia, better known as Hayastan at home, relied on Russian security guarantees for centuries against the Ottoman Empire and the Turkey-backed Azerbaijan. Russia, tied up in Ukraine, failed to help Hayastan when Azerbaijan launched a 24-hour strike in September in Nagorno-Karabakh. After decades of conflict, the enclave fell under Azeri control. Hayastani Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan called his country's security agreement with Russia ineffective. The country swiftly joined the International Criminal Court, barring Putin from visiting, given his open arrest warrant. Hayastan is now buying weapons from India, is exploring deepening ties with Iran, and most significantly, deepening ties with the West. Hayastan military leaders visited U.S.-European command last week in Stuttgart, Germany, and held exercises with NATO. Hayastan sees Russia has no clothes, and they'll see Iran has none either, should a border conflict erupt. Vietnam, long hostile towards the United States, entered into a comprehensive strategic partnership in September. It's hedging its bets against a nationalist China. For the first time ever, longtime rivals Japan and South Korea conducted joint military exercises with the United States, seeking military protection against North Korea and China. Japan and the Philippines, led by the United States, are seeking a military alliance against China and North Korea as well. A member of Israel's governing Likud party appeared on Russian state propaganda network RT and exoriated Russia, promising payback for its support of Hamas. And I get, I get, with all due respect, that I understand you're on the Russian payroll, and I understand this is a Russian propaganda, but you have to be very careful, because let me tell you, we're going to finish this war. We're going to win because we're stronger. After this, Russia will pay the price. Believe me, Russia will, Russia pay, will pay the, the price. price. Russia is supporting the enemies of Israel. Russia is supporting Nazi people who want to commit genocide on us, and just Russia will pay the price. Russia also. Now, let me listen to me very carefully. We are going to finish with these Nazis. We're going to win this war. It's going to take the time it's going to take, but we're going to win this war. Afterwards, we're not forgetting what you are doing. We're not forgetting. We will come. We will make sure that Ukraine wins. We will make sure that you pay the price for what you have done. You as Russia and you and as all the enemies of Israel and you as all the people who are now making everything they can to support genocide of the Jews in Israel. We are not forgetting. We are not forgetting. Remember exactly what I'm saying now. You will pay the price. Amir, I think it's safe to say that this is a very passionate conflict that is happening here. Well, people have been massacred. My people has been slaughtered by your proxies and you will pay the price. Is it clear? Believe no. me. You no, I, I don't, I don't actually think it is clear. Very, very, very sternly. Russia is showing that it's all talk, and although U.S. defense funding for Ukraine may appear in jeopardy, Russia may be miscalculating. It simply can't comprehend the democratic process. It's likely that, given the threat of presidential veto and strong backing in the Senate, Congress will authorize another spending bill for Ukraine, Israel, and the southern border. Last, but certainly not least, military tech. Ukraine has produced a domestic missile with a range of 700 kilometers and is working on extending its range to 1,000 kilometers. In an interview with Defense Express over the weekend, Brigadier General Serhiy Baranov, a member of the general staff in charge of missiles, drones and artillery, confirmed a statement made by President Zelensky on August 31st. Zelensky said Ukraine had successfully used the domestically made weapon. Quote, 
The rocket program is active. There are already experimental models, and tests are being conducted. This was a completely new missile, and we will continue to enhance its capabilities in terms of range and accuracy. I believe you will see the results in the due course. End quote. We are not clear on whether this is a cruise missile or a ballistic missile, but we love to see it. The Smorgasburg of military aid packages continues to flow to Ukraine. The German Ministry of Defense announced November 1st that it delivered 12 armored personnel carriers, two TRML-4D air surveillance radars, seven Primaco-1 reconnaissance drones, two AMP self-protection systems for helicopters, five water drones, 10,000 safety glasses, 32 satellite communications terminals, a 3D circuit board printer, cool, four HX-81 tank transporters, 12-man TGS tractor-trailer transporters, and 30,000 sets of winter clothes. Germany also said 25 Leopard 1A5 main battle tanks, 11 Primaco-1 reconnaissance drones, 14 AMPS self-protection systems, and 13-man TGS are on their way. France delivered 40 AMX-10RC armored vehicles. The AMX-10RC are primarily used for reconnaissance and have 105mm gun, similar to the one on the Leopard 1 main battle tank. Dutch Defense Minister Kasia Ollengren, not to be outdone, also announced a 500 million euro aid package on November 3rd after visiting Kharkiv and Kyiv. About half will go towards tank ammunition and half will go towards artillery ammunition. Austria also sent humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, including two passenger cars, a fire tanker, and a ladder truck. Wait, I'm not done. In late October, Denmark announced its 13th aid package to Ukraine worth $520 million. It included T-72EA tanks, BMP-2 IFVs, artillery shells, drones, small arms, engineering, and recovery vehicles. The U.S. announced a $125 million aid package using Presidential Drawdown Authority funds on November 3rd, including ammunition for NASEM's air defense systems, HIMARS, 155mm and 105mm artillery rounds, TOW missiles, Javelin and AT-4 anti-armor systems, 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition, grenades, demolitions munitions for obstacle clearing, M18A1 Claymore mines, 12 trucks and cold-weather gear. On October 26th, the U.S. said $150 million in military kit would be sent to Ukraine, including NASEMS and HIMARS munitions, AIM-9M missiles modified for air defense, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 155mm and 105mm artillery rounds, TOW missiles, Javelin anti-tank systems, 2 million rounds of small arms ammo, night vision gear, demolitions explosives for obstacle clearing and cold weather equipment. But wait, there is more! Under the $300 million Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, it would provide additional laser-guided munitions to knock out drones. The announcement from the U.S. marks the 50th aid package sent since the start of the full-scale invasion. According to Forbes, the Ukrainian military received M1150 assault breacher vehicle built on the framework of the Abrams tank. Several photos posted by President Volodymyr Zelensky on November 3rd to commemorate the Day of Missile Forces and Artillery and Engineering Troops revealed a vehicle resembling a hybrid of a tank and heavy-duty harvesting machine. The US-made assault breacher will play a crucial role in clearing the extensive network of minefields established by the Russian forces over hundreds of kilometers. Worth $4 million, the two-person crew of the assault breacher can dig up and safely detonate buried mines. 
fill in trenches and excavate anti-tank berms, and then mark, with tiny flags, a safe lane for tanks and fighting vehicles to speed through the breach. And the crew can do all this work without leaving the protection of the thickly armored vehicle. Good! We like our armor thick in Ukraine. Eight Swedish Archer artillery systems have already been delivered to Ukraine, according to Swedish Defense Minister Paul Johnson. The Archer is one of the world's most advanced artillery systems, capable of firing projectiles at a distance of up to 50 kilometers. Its high fire rate and ability to quickly redeploy will make it a difficult target for Russian counter-battery fire. It only takes a few minutes to deploy, shoot, and drive off from the location. It can come to a stop, set up, fire three rounds of artillery in rapid succession, pack up and be mobile again in about 90 seconds. It's like HIMARS, but for artillery. A South Korean lawmaker said North Korea sent more than 1 million rounds of artillery to Russia after being briefed by that country's spy agency. Since August, 10 shipments of weapons were sent by Pyongyang to Russia. North Korea also sent advisors on the use of the munitions. The Hermit Kingdom has some of the world's largest stores of artillery shells and rockets that are interoperable with Soviet-era weaponry. The Kremlin's war machine, dependent on artillery superiority, has been churning through its stocks and scrambling for supplies during the 620-day, three-day special military operation. South Korea's military intelligence agency said North Korea likely transferred an unspecified number of short-range ballistic missiles, anti-tank missiles, portable surface-to-air missiles, in addition to rifles, rocket launchers, mortars, and shells to Russia as well. Dictator Kim Jong-un has mobilized his subjects, and his factories, dependent on slave labor, are operating at full capacity. In exchange for this kit of dubious quality, Russia is providing technical assistance for North Korea's planned military reconnaissance satellite. North Korea wants Russia's nuclear technologies. Shocking to no one. And that's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to our work on Substack and Patreon. We'll be back on Wednesday with more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Мирного неба!